Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Bird. Tonight, bicycles, skis, kayaks, paddle boards, sailboats, uh, tricycles on foot, you name it. A BC man has spent eight years circumnavigating the globe without ever once using motorized transport, not even an elevator or an escalator. How did he do it? Why did he do it? What was the best part of the journey? What were the toughest parts? And how good was it to come home? We'll find out. Until last month, he was Director General of Communications at the Beijing-based Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank. Then Bob Picard very publicly resigned, blowing the whistle on what he says is a deeply concerning amount of influence wielded by officials of the Chinese Communist Party within the bank itself, calling it, in fact, a cesspool, and that Canada should withdraw its membership, his words setting off a bombshell in the worlds of international finance and geopolitics and leading Canada to suspend activity with the bank and launch a review. He joins me to talk about what he witnessed and why he sounded the alarm. But first, the strike by port workers in BC is nearing the two-week mark now and businesses big and small right across the country are feeling the pain. We meet the owner of one BC beverage manufacturer who's quickly running out of bottles because they're sitting in a container somewhere. And he says consumers will soon see the impact of the strike on store shelves as well. Well, a lot of people are hoping uh, they start uh, moving again in BC ports. Business and government are responding favorably to the possible breakthrough in the 12-day strike that has shut down all ports along the BC coast. Of course, a lot of the Canadian economy relies on those ports and activity there. Labour Minister Seamus O'Regan has given a federal mediator 24 hours, it's about to wrap up actually, to send him recommendations to end the dispute between the BC Maritime Employers Association and the International Longshore and Warehouse Union Canada. Uh, O'Regan will forward those recommendations to the two sides and they'll have another 24 hours to decide whether or not to ratify them. If they don't, we don't really know what happens next, but it appears that recalling Parliament and introducing back-to-work legislation may be in the cards. Why are they on strike, the 7,400 of them? Uh, they have been since July 1st. They want higher wages, better protection against contracting out of work and automation. And pressure's on from Canada's premiers as well. They've been meeting in Winnipeg this week, and they say every day trade is bottlenecked in B.C. It's a threat to their province or territory. Here's Alberta's Danielle Smith. When we see a 12-day disruption, it's going to take, uh, two to, I'm told, two to five times as long for us to be able to not only clear that backlog, but get those chains operating back to normal. When you have that kind of disruption, then you can start potentially losing international customers. It's an enormous problem. Greater Vancouver Board of Trade CEO Bridget Anderson says there's no guarantee the strike will end quickly. Even now, her group continues to call for federal back-to-work legislation. You know, it is encouraging to see this first step after 12 days. We have been calling, along with my colleagues, since the beginning of the dispute for the federal government to use every tool in its toolbox. So this is a positive first step, but there is no guarantee that this is going to end quickly if either side opts out. Right. Half of all businesses in the country are noticing the the disruption at those ports, according to the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. And one of them is Will Routley's owner of the Functional Beverage Group in Abbotsford, BC. Will, thanks so much for your time tonight. Yeah, happy to be here. Tell me a bit about what you do. I realize, I I think think the problem is pretty easy to figure out, but what what is it that you sell and what are you waiting for that you don't have that's sitting in the port right now? Yeah, I mean, we're a husband-wife business, so Shoshana and I started it uh, seven years ago. And, you know, as a lot of small business does, it's just a, a little hobby that grows and grows. And, you know, now we have 12 staff and we make uh, health beverages. Um, 
So we're local in that we use local ingredients. Uh, most of our suppliers are local. But what a lot of people don't realize is that not everything is available locally. So for us, packaging material in particular, um, glass bottles is a big one. It's top of the list. We are down to our last bottle. It'll be done probably this evening. Um, wow. So then we're sitting here saying, okay, what do we do for the next few weeks? It's going to take, you know, is anyone's guess, but two, three weeks before things start to flow again. Um, so it's the busiest time of the year for a beverage company. It's, it's a really tough, tough right. to swallow. High to summer, right? I mean, uh, and, and I gather you, you provide some of the big retailers in, in and around BC as well? That's right, yeah. We actually do some private brands, so we actually make some of the large retailers' brands for them. Um, and yeah, I mean, we supply, if you're in Western Canada, you'd recognize, you know, Save on Foods, Nature's Fair, Loblaws, even Costco now as of this week is a new customer we're just starting with. So it's, uh, it's a really exciting time for us in our business, but it's also a really stressful time to say we're going to be out of stock. Right. I mean, and what you're waiting for, I gather, the number that I saw and you've been interviewed elsewhere was 300,000 glass bottles and aluminum cans. Where are they coming from and where are they? You must, I guess you know where they are right now. Uh, well, they're, they're floating out there on a boat somewhere. Um, but yeah, that's right. So, I mean, we bring in 45,000 glass bottles in a container um, and we have three of those on the water as well as a container of cans. Um, and it's just purely for the fact that there, there are no suppliers here in North America that produce this glass. Um, and it took us years of working with distributors locally, but the distributors are also importing. Um, and eventually we found a really good relationship and we have a, a broker here that is a Chinese and Canadian citizen and he brings in top quality product. It's it's fantastic relationship, but, you know, we're really, we're just stuck. There's no alternate source. Right. I guess you, you everyone's looking, right? Everyone's looking for some answer, but uh, but in your business, it must be, there's lots of demand out there and there's only so many suppliers and a lot of them for everyone need to come yeah, in. That's- on the water. That's exactly right. Yeah, no, it comes in on the water. And I mean, it's funny, like we probably work with a dozen suppliers locally just in the Fraser Valley here between Vancouver and Abbotsford. Um, and I've talked to all of them and everyone has something that they're missing. They're, you know, it could be tea coming in. It could be a, a lid for a type of package that they use that they put their ingredient in. It could be anything, you, you name it. There, there's something that they're running out of. <laughs> Right. I, I was good. I, that's, that was, I was, that was a question for you was, are, you must be hearing it from other people too. You're not alone. You're not the only one in this boat, so to speak. No, no, it's tough. It's tough. Um, I mean, we're, we're doing really well and we're optimistic and, and we're enjoying where we're at in our business. So don't get me wrong. We're not, uh, we're not complaining, but it's, it's a tough one when it's, it's the busy summer season, you know, that's when it really hits you. Um, and there's nothing we can do, but everyone's just watching the news and hitting refresh again and again and again, <laughs> and hoping right. for some good news. Were you uh, were you optimistic when you saw that news come out last night that at least uh, Ottawa looks like they're moving somewhat on this now? I mean, well, I mean, it's been it's a lot of push. better than yeah, better than what we've been seeing. I mean, it's been pretty much radio silence here for the last week. So, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I feel a little more optimistic. It will come to an end. I mean, I I kind of wish we heard that news a week ago, um, but better late than never. Um, yeah. So, I think there's there's some light at the end of the tunnel coming. Yeah. I, I mean, and this is not to be overly critical. I mean, this is a delicate situation for any government, right? This is a labor negotiation. They have a, you know, a partner in government, uh, you know, someone they're in partnership with in, in government that, that is very pro-union or pro-labor. So this is a bit of a tough one politically, but it feels like they haven't really been paying much attention to businesses like yours that we're going to start to suffer pretty quickly. And who knows how long it's going to take for that backlog to clear up if this continues. Yeah, I mean, I think that is kind of the, the conversation right now. Like, I'm not, I don't profess to be an expert, and you're right, it is a delicate political situation. But I think 
it was perhaps underestimated just the the impact on small business um, and you know medium and large business too. But just just how interconnected we are and how much is moving through the port. It's it's really wild. And even if it may only comprise five percent of what an individual business does or sells, um, it may stop all operations because that's a key five percent that little component. I, I would have thought we would have figured that out during the height of the pandemic when we had similar supply chain issues and everyone became acutely aware of just how bottlenecks create huge issues for individual businesses in this country. Well, that's a part that kind of blows me away, to be honest, is, I mean, we just went through, and I mean, we were in the flood zone in Abbotsford too. So it's like, we went through COVID time, oh, wow. we went through the flood and all these things. So we're like, okay, it's just par for the course at this point. But you're right. <laughs> like who even used the, the term supply chain a few years ago? And now it's, it's our just everyday language that we all are aware of. And we understand this. So when the strike first, you know, the news dropped, I was kind of expecting an immediate response because we should have known that it's very impactful. What happens to your business? You said you say you're down to your last bottle. Uh, what? I guess you can't do much if you're not bottling it. You're just going <laughs> to leave all <laughs> your leave it. all your staff in in hand and just sort of wait it out or try and see what happens. Well, I'm thankful that we have added um, other packaging formats. So we, we do can and we do sell in bulk, like in kegs for restaurants and food service and things. Um, so we have some other alternate channels. Um, so we're, we're canning like crazy. So we're keeping busy. I certainly don't want to be in the situation where I'm laying staff off when we just hired some new staff over the last two weeks. Um, so I think we'll be able to keep busy. But, you know, one of our local can suppliers, they do decoration of cans. They label them and print them and things. And they're, they're running out of certain sizes. Um so it makes more work in that you have to get out there and search and call in favors and look for alternate sources as fast as you can. Um, it puts more right. pressure on domestic production as well. And it's not always available when it's the height of the season. Right. One of the issues I think here is a lot of consumers. And one of the reasons I really wanted to speak to someone in your shoes tonight was because I think a lot of consumers haven't seen it yet, haven't seen the impact yet. We we might well very soon, but we haven't yet. And and that means there's not, it hasn't been a lot of pressure on parties and the government to sort of step in and fix this, but it's people in your situations who are right on the front line of it, uh, who know much better than we do that there's already, everyone's already, you know, looking around wondering when they're going to run out of some stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think you raise a good point, actually. Like if I, as a consumer, if I just go to the store, you know, there's, there's still cell phones on the shelf. There's still bags of chips in the grocery store, all these things. Yeah. Um, but that's because as a manufacturer, as a producer on that side, I have inventory on hand and I know I'm, using it up to the to the last drop so i haven't had to respond with those out of stock emails yet but they're coming next week um so you know my distributors that i sell to and they go and deliver to all the stores they're going to be upset they're all of a sudden it's going to trickle down to them and then you'll see it in the next two weeks Ooh, there's empty shelves what happened uh maybe not everything but there'll certainly be items that are missing well, when you look at just the impact of this already i guess this could mean big big losses and sales for you if this continues yeah, I certainly hope not, but I mean, that's, yeah. that is the reality of the situation. Like I just 30 minutes ago was speaking with my production manager and we were looking at uh, like the volume of product that we have in tanks. Um, and we're starting to say, okay, there's only a certain period of time that it remains ready to be bottled. And at some point, what do you do? Can it, I, I don't have tens of thousands of liters of refrigeration to put it into. So it's potentially loss. Um, but the biggest one is what you said, loss of sales. It's an opportunity because it is a short window that we have hot sunny weather in Canada and that's that's a crucial time for us so yeah I mean it's, it's super disappointing we're just really counting the days counting the minutes till we can get back on track 
Right. I, I guess you, no one's been able to say, listen, if this clears up tomorrow, what kind of, how long will you have to, how much longer will you have to wait, right? Yeah. I mean, I think everyone's going to be watching, what is it, 1030 tomorrow morning that, uh, that we'll hear the response um, to the to the mediator's recommendations. But uh, everyone's going to be watching that and hoping, but no one knows yeah, how fast containers can get moving and how big the backlog is. Um, I've heard some of, if they were only halfway here, they turned around and went back, which is kind of disconcerting to think. <laughs> right. I, I can't imagine that when you and your wife started this business seven years ago, you, you, you'd think you'd be paying rapt attention to a, to strike talks or, 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 or you know, medi- a, me, a mediator in a strike dispute at the port, right? No, I can't say that was uh, – I mean, there's a lot of things that you get into business. You start to learn about the intricacies of logistics and different things, but I definitely never thought I'd be following a, a strike like this. No. No. Well, you had COVID, you had flooding, now you have this. Um, obviously, I wish, I, I sincerely hope this ends soon and this is the last one for a while. You can go about just bottling and selling for the rest of the summer because it sounds well, like you're building a good that. thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, we, we certainly focus on, on quality health product. That's what we try to do. And we, we do work with local suppliers and retailers and that's always been our a key component of our of our business. So, yeah, I mean, that's really it. You just want to get get back to doing doing your job right and i guess a word for all the rest of us out there who, who as consumers who don't own small businesses who haven't really been hit by this yet i suppose your warning to them is is you know just wait it's it's coming if this if this isn't solved <laughs> yeah i mean not not that i'm prophesizing doom and gloom or anything <laughs> no, no, yeah, no no I no do i think yeah. we will at, at some level everyone will will notice it well will uh i wish you the best thanks so much for your time tonight yeah i appreciate it thanks thanks for having me on They've wrapped up those two days of meetings in Vilnius. The NATO summit was taking place. I'm sure you may have read about it or heard about it. It's been much talked about the past few days. Uh, Progress was made on some key stumbling blocks as getting Turkey on side to move Sweden's membership forward. But on the issue of Ukraine, the language around a timeline for the country to enter the military alliance remains pretty vague and noncommittal. NATO Secretary Jens Stoltenberg offered some reassuring comments, though, stating Ukraine is indeed well on its way. Now we have agreed a three-part package bringing Ukraine closer to NATO. A multi-year program of practical assistance, establishing a new NATO-Ukraine Council and reaffirming that Ukraine will become a member of NATO and removing the requirement for the membership action plan. Yeah, I mean, the president, Vladimir Zelensky, didn't seem too pleased yesterday. He says NATO is crucial for Ukraine, joining NATO and its protection and the protection of its European neighbors. The U.S. and Germany are concerned about risking a wider war with Russia. At least that's been the talk, making it clear that a concrete timeline for membership for Ukraine is premature. Um Prime Minister Trudeau sat down with Vladimir Zelensky at the NATO summit this morning, again, a day after the president blasted the alliance for failing to extend a clear invite to his country. But he thanked Canada today. It's uh, a really important time for us to be uh, uh, always making sure that we're giving you all the best support you can. It's been uh, uh, an important time to come together to have you at NATO. We, uh, there's, a, there's a path forward and we're continuing to work on getting all the support uh, Ukraine needs during this incredibly pivotal time. All of our feeling that really Canadians helped Ukraine and helped from the very beginning of full-scale war. We really count on you. 
people and uh, we are the same and we you know that we fight for the same values and uh, my appreciation for all your support and your government there's uh, Vladimir Zelensky and uh, Justin Trudeau. As for Canada, some items of note over the past few days and just prior, a promise to send more troops to bolster NATO's eastern front in Latvia. And uh, the Prime Minister announced that the Canadian military will welcome Ukrainian officer cadets to this country for an intensive training program developed in partnership with NATO. But, and this is one that always plagues Canada a little bit, members of NATO today pledged to boost spending on national defense. That's one that Canada and other countries have for years failed to meet. Uh, previous targets, including ones made by Stephen Harper all the way back in Wales in 2014. Joining me now is Ottawa Citizen Military Affairs reporter David Pugliese. David, thank you so much. Oh, great to be here. Thank you. Well, I've been watching this, you know, watching out of the corner of my eye. You know, I covered I covered the Bucharest um, NATO summit, I guess, back in 2008, I guess, or 2009, I guess it was. And, you know, it's a lot of talk. And, and at the end of it, not a lot happens. But in this one, this one seemed like quite a bit went on. What did you make of of how it all shook down. Well, um, you know, it wasn't uh, unexpected. Uh, there's more uh, uh, weapons um, uh, being committed uh, to Ukraine. Uh, the Americans and, and Germany have have announced uh, new packages of, of equipment. Uh, Canada is going to be training uh, Ukrainian uh, officers uh, in Quebec at the uh, at the military uh, schools there. Um, you know, we're going to be giving uh, some more uh, military aid. Uh, Canada has provided uh, more than $8 billion worth uh, of assistance to Ukraine. So, I mean, that seemed to already be in the cards. Um, you know, then we get to this infamous 2% of GDP spending, and and then that's where <laughs> that's where you know things kind of <laughs> come apart as usual. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I last I looked, we were you know a little under one point, right around one point three percent or so. I mean, what's interesting is they've committed to this new language, and we knew they were going to do this, which sort of ups the ante a little bit on this two percent target because clearly uh, Stephen Harper agreed to this uh, ten year, nine years ago now for Canada. Mm-hmm. And then cut defense spending. We've never met it. We've never come anywhere close to meeting it. Uh, you pointed out in, a, in an article this week that that in fact Canada actually, if you if if you take away that metric and you let's just look at Canada's defense spending and how much we've contributed to the war in Ukraine, uh, to supporting Ukraine, Canada's Canada's actually quite spends quite a bit of money on this stuff. Yeah, I mean, this 2% is um, is uh, uh, not seen as, I mean, you, you keep seeing a lot of articles, oh, Canada's a laggard and, and uh, you know, it hasn't met its 2%. Well, Stephen Harper, as you pointed out, had signed on, but, but he, he said he wasn't going to do it. Um, because here's the issue, 2% of our GDP, uh, we have to spend $18 billion more a year on on the defense budget um and and so here's how the you know two percent works so you have latvia it spends three percent of its gdp on defense and its defense budget is 1.5 billion dollars but here's canada the supposed laggard at 1.3 percent and we're spending 23 billion dollars so uh you know that's the uh, that's the problem with with that metric we're canada is number 14 in the world as far as defense spending so to, yeah. to you know to call us a, a you know a, a, a laggard <laughs> i mean that's that's pretty ridiculous right and, and and yet you've made you've always i mean that song has been sung for many many years mm-hmm. now but you're one of those out there who's always been very careful to point out 
look at look at who's in the choir. Look at who's singing the song, and and it's important <laughs> right. to not all. I mean, you know, there's lots of people in there who have you know all uh, every good intention. But you said you know there there is certainly uh, a group of people who are determined to up military spending in this country. Uh, we've made these commitments before, and 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 you point out there are many other crises the government faces these days. But there is a concerted effort and a consistent one to get Canada up mm-hmm. its military spending. What do you make of the, of the, when you talk to others in this, and you have great connections in this world, what do you make of the doom and gloom? How is it treated behind the scenes? You know, there's, uh, well, first of all, the Defense Department or the Canadian Forces sees this as, as, a, uh, as a, you know, a, a good way to try to push defense spending and get it up there. There are problems, um, you know, in the Canadian Forces, obviously, so there's problems getting equipment and there's problems with procurement. Uh, you know, does that have uh, to do with money mm, or does it have to do more with mismanagement? Then you've got the recruiting problem, which has nothing nothing really to do with with money you've got a recruiting system that is ineffective and you've got a uh, canadian youth who are not interested in uh, joining the canadian military so you could argue that there's other factors i mean they could spend 18 billion dollars a year more and will that make uh, you know uh, canadian uh, youth uh, flock to to the military uh, I, I doubt it They'd have a hard time moving that eighteen billion out out the door if they, even if they had it, wouldn't they? They can't, you know. They yeah, they have great difficulty moving projects forward, and that's part of the problem. You know, there's politics and and there's bureaucracy, um, but they can't spend what they've got now. The other issue is what they're spending on. So. You know, they come up with this Canadian surface combatants, the largest procurement in Canadian history. They start off with a with a budget of twenty six billion dollars. Now it's eighty billion. So over a course of of you know ten years, you've seen this increase of massive increase. Well, there's defense dollars or future defense dollars being pushed out the door and you're you're getting the same the same thing 15 ships so you know i think some of these problems are related to um, poor planning mismanagement um that type of thing yeah and, and and yet the politics become involved as well but when you when whenever we've talked about this it's clear that all of these issues are long standing issues this is not one particular government doesn't like the military this is a long standing issue of sort of difficulty around procurement difficulty around recruitment difficulty mm-hmm. around many things mm-hmm. yeah and there's a lot more there's a lot more pressures out there on 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 government so whether it's whether it's healthcare um, you know, and that's, uh, you know, federal funds go to health care, but it's a provincial responsibility. But there, you know, we've got climate change. We've got, you know, all these issues. You know, Canadians are affected more by climate change uh, directly than they are in the war in Ukraine. Uh, you know, 155,000 uh, Canadians had to leave their homes because of the forest fires. Right. And you pointed that out, too, that this may, in fact, give um, this government. I mean, one out of, I guess one of the things I've always been curious about, I don't know if you know this from people who are closer to it, but NATO is one of those strange organizations where we always make these commitments. I mean, I remember Wales distinctly. I was mm-hmm. working in London at the time. I remember the Wales commitments and, and we didn't meet those. Here we are. They're supposed to be met by next year. We're not going to meet them. We've upped again. We've said yes to these sort of targets. Uh, we're, we're likely not going to meet them again. 
How does it work? Is it just a bit of a bit of a nudge, nudge, a wink, wink kind of thing when we when we agree to all this stuff? They they know we won't do it, but it's a way of sort of keeping everyone on board. Yeah, I think so. I think there's um, I, I think people behind closed doors are, uh, you know, and uh, we're not going to we're not going to make that target. I mean, uh, Prime Minister Harper came out and said, because <laughs> I covered Wales as well. I was there and, and uh, he said, yeah, we've signed on, but you know, I'm not going to make we're not going to do that 2% because he said what counts more is the capability you bring to the table. Now, you could argue that our capability is is hurting these days and uh, and, and that's a that's a valid argument. But money, you know, shouldn't be used as the um as the kind of yardstick. David Pugliese is with us, a military affairs reporter, the Ottawa Citizen. Is it our it is our journalism corner part of the week? Every Wednesday we do this. Talk to a reporter about some of the interesting things they've been working on. Uh, David, what did you make of this of this move by the U.S. to provide Ukraine with cluster munitions? Because I distinctly remember when the ban came in, and Canada was obviously a big supporter, along with about 120 other countries. That, but not the U.S., not Ukraine, and not Russia. Uh, but mm-hmm. this is one of those this is one of those ones that reminds us that even though this isn't an Afghanistan for Canada. There are some moral issues at play here in this war in Ukraine that Mm -hmm. aren't uh, maybe as cut and dried as sometimes we'd like to think they are. Well, I mean, yeah, as you mentioned, so 123 countries, uh, you know, signed on to that uh, uh, convention uh, on on cluster munitions, um, except Ukraine didn't, Russia didn't, and the United States didn't. So cluster bombs have been used already by Russia and by Ukraine uh, during this war. So uh, now you've got the U.S. is going to to supply um, supply more, um, or for the first time, supply uh, you know cluster munitions. Will it affect, you know, Canada said, oh, they shouldn't do that. But and, and other NATO nations have said that as well. But uh, it's it's, you know, it's not going to be a, a kind of a line in the sand for Canada. Canada is not going to stop, you know, supporting Ukraine. So in some respects, the the statements from from the prime minister and such are, are meaningless. Right. I wish they hadn't, he said, essentially. Yeah. But I mean, Joe Biden put it pretty simply. He said, you know, they're running out of certain kinds of, of ammunition and this is going to help. And basically, you know, the Russians were the first to use them on civilians anyway. So here we mm-hmm. go. But it just I thought it was just interesting because it is one of those it's one of those moral issues that's, that pops up in conflict. And, and this one was an interesting one because Canada was quite uh, has always been very vocally supportive of this ban. And yet here we are having to, you know, with an ally in Ukraine, an ally in the U.S., NATO and so on, having to sort of uh, turn away from that. Yeah, but Canada has also been, uh, you know, had uh, different stances about providing equipment and weapons to, uh, you know, to countries, uh, yet it still does that. I mean, take Saudi Arabia, for instance, and some of the armored vehicles that have that have been sent to that country. So, uh, you know, um, moral issues uh, can be flexible uh, when it comes to uh, when it comes to arms exports and when it comes to uh, to a war. Right. Another topic you've been writing on recently is this uh, this tragic uh, Chinook crash that happened uh, near Petawawa. Uh, mm-hmm. I gather they're trying to figure out what went wrong. What, what should we make of it? I mean, I think often we think of the Chinook as, as being uh, the workhorse. I mean, I've been on one. I'm sure you, you have as well over the years. Uh, mm-hmm. What do you think? What's what, what's what questions need to be answered here? And what does it mean for the for the Chinook fleet? 
you know, I I don't think it it means a lot for the Chinook fleet. That helicopter's got a a very good reputation, um, and the RCAF um, has not grounded uh, its Chinook helicopters. It took a pause, but that was just uh, out of uh, respect uh, to uh, 450 Squadron, um, uh, you know, that that fly the the helicopters. So they're going to come, uh, they're going to figure out what happened. It was a nighttime uh, training exercise when the when the helicopter uh, uh, crashed. It's sitting um, in uh, about 23, 24 meters of water in the Ottawa River. And so now they've got to uh, bring in uh, barges and cranes and, and bring it up. Right. And, and I gather that, that like many aircraft, uh, they will be able to piece together where well, there is there is obviously a voice, a voice cockpit recorder and mm-hmm. so on in these in these aircraft that will allow them to piece together what could have gone wrong here. Yeah, there there is a so-called black box, so they'll be they'll be looking at that and and different other factors. But we're not seeing. Uh, there's been no indication that there's technical problems with the uh, with the Chinook. And uh, like I mentioned, you know, the RCAF is still flying the aircraft. Right, and one of the pilots was uh, was someone who had an incredible amount of experience, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he was um, a lot of hours um, actually on the Griffin helicopter, and uh, he had served in, uh, uh, you know, with uh, Canadian Special Forces. So he was uh, a well-regarded pilot. Right, Captain LaRouche, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So I guess as, as we walk away from all this, for the rest of the summer, I, I suppose NATO was sort of the apex of, of our talk of things that were going on in terms of, you know, the Canadian military. But it's going to be a busy there's – a, there's, a there's a lot of things meant to happen this summer in terms of where they're moving recruitment-wise, where they're moving in terms of we're expecting this policy paper that I think we still haven't mm-hmm. seen yet. Um, what, are, what will you be looking for for in the next few months? Well, there's talk that the policy paper has been pushed off to late August, uh, early September. Um, so that's what I'm going to be watching for. Um, but the other issue is they're going to come out with this policy paper and it's going to project, you know, spending and, and equipment purchases and different policies out, you know, for, for decades when, you know, this government may not be in power. Um, it's the same with, the you know, the conservatives came out with their policy paper and uh, and then and then the, the liberals came out with theirs. So. You know, whether these policy papers are worth the, the paper they're written on is, is another matter. Yeah, we all talk about them for for months. If they don't produce them on time, then when they when they when they do produce them, we promptly ignore them and then throw them away. I mean, it's yeah, the way it, it always it, works. You know, it's you know they're going to say, hey, we uh, you know we want to buy X, Y, and Z in twenty thirty. Um, well, who knows what you know how the situation is going to be has changed by twenty thirty, for instance. Do you expect them to at least try to establish? I mean, what part of the problem that I think the Canadian Forces is having right now is what what are they meant to do? Right? Are they a domestic force that sort of takes care of, of internal issues and comes in when uh, local authorities are overwhelmed by natural disasters and so on? You know, do you think there's going to be try to be a redefining of the role of the military at this point? I think there's going to be talk about it, but the Canadian Forces is very resistant to. Um, to changes in its its role, uh, you know, its traditional role, they help Canadians during you know times of of um, uh, you know cl- uh, climate change or floods or fires, but you don't get the sense that that's what they want to do. They would rather be overseas in Iraq uh, or in Africa or training uh, Ukrainian soldiers. Um, 
but they may not have a choice in in adapting to the future because we're starting to see more extreme weather. We're starting to see uh, more effects on our country, and the military is seen as a, kind of a first responder in this. They have the equipment, the helicopters to move people, to help people, um, you know, the heavy equipment to to deal with things, and the manpower, person power, um, to help put out forest fires and such. So they might not have a, much of a choice to, to get more involved in this area. Well, David, as always, thank you. Thanks very much. Uh, let's move over to Asia now, because this has been a big story brewing amongst Japan and its many neighbors. The regional backlash to Japan's plans to release millions of liters of wastewater from the Fukushima nuclear reactor continues to build. Today, Hong Kong announced it will follow mainland China in banning seafood imports from 10 Japanese prefectures or provinces, including Tokyo, if the country releases radioactive wastewater from the nuclear plant into the sea. Uh, the ban would cover all kinds of stuff. Now, Japan's plan has been approved by the new UN's nuclear watchdog. It's faced opposition at home and abroad over concerns over food safety. The country insists the release will be safe, or the release is, because it's not going to do it all at once. There's going to be several, and it will meet global standards. Now, the government and the operator, you remember, remember this name from the actual Fukushima disaster, uh, TEPCO, the Tokyo Electric Power Company holdings, have struggled with how to manage the massive amount of contaminated water coming from the damaged reactors, which is filtered and stored in tanks. They want to release the water into the Pacific after further treatment and dilution with seawater, which they say will make it safer than international standards. Uh, the government and TEPCO say the water must be removed to prevent any accidental leaks and to make room for the plant's decommissioning. And they hope to start releasing the water this summer. But it has been a source of concern and certainly of popular concern where it's been interesting. And I think this happens. This happened back at the time uh, in, the, in the months after the disaster itself. It's happening again, specifically around its neighbors. There is concern about what impact this will have on seafood and other things uh, that come from the sea, specifically in areas like China and Hong Kong and so on. Uh, Jay Cullen knows a lot about this. He looked into uh, the impact of the original Fukushima disaster, and uh, he's with me now. He's with the Department of Oceanography at the University of Victoria. He's a professor there. Jay, thank you. Uh, thanks for uh, the invitation to speak with you this evening, Ben. This has been an interesting one because I, I always feel like there's two, there's sort of parallel tracks when it comes to this issue. One is one is what the experts are saying and what TEPCO is proposing, and one is sort of the popular uprising against it. And I know this only because I've been hearing about it for for several weeks now. People, uh, specifically in Hong Kong, very concerned about this idea of releasing, uh, you know, wastewater, radioactive wastewater into the ocean. Uh, yeah. So, in your 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 lead-in, Ben, you mentioned that the uh, the UN um, International Atomic uh, Energy Agency uh, did conduct a review of the proposed plan. So, the proposed plan goes back to 2021, and that's when Japan and TEPCO asked the IAEA uh, to assess their approach and some of the risks associated with disposing of this wastewater in the North Pacific. And um, it's important to note that that review by the UN really only considered the technical aspects of right. the actual disposal scheme. So not the societal impacts or uh, the political ramifications, the, the relationships between uh, Japan and, uh, and its neighbors. Right. And I saw articles suggesting, I mean, at least amongst neighbors, because this has become contentious with, with South Korea. It's become contentious with China and Hong Kong, obviously, uh, within Japan itself. But there were suggestions that the IE, the IE, 
IAEA's report had been sort of nudged by the Japanese a bit to try and get it to say what they want. I don't know how true that all is, but there's certainly a lot of suspicion out there around this, not for the first time. No, no. Whenever you're talking about uh, nuclear energy and certainly nuclear weapons, uh, this case, of course, uh, nuclear energy and and the meltdowns that occurred at the site back in 2011, uh, there's a lot of distrust in the public. I mean, you've got um, large corporations, uh, you've got government involved, and and you've got nuclear technology. And the public is sort of, um, you know, uh, th- that instills a certain uh, fear and wariness and, and distrust among uh, certain members of the public. Um, you know, in this case, uh, that review that was conducted and, and included experts uh, here from Canada and, and from other countries um, uh, certainly was, was was quite thorough. And the, the findings of, of that review of the proposed dis- disposal scheme, which, as you said, involved uh, treating the water, uh, diluting it, and then um, basically uh, pumping it out through a uh, an underground uh, pipe uh, tunnel uh, into the coastal ocean, that the um, the radiological impacts uh, both on, on human beings and the environment uh, were found to be negligible. Um, now, uh, you know, that takes into account what we know about um, the levels of some of these isotopes of concern in the wastewater. There's sort of an incomplete documentation of that from the international scientific uh, community standpoint. Uh, I and my colleagues have been calling for you know, uh, sort of a complete uh, uh, scheme of, 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 of measuring and understanding what's in the tanks. And it's really only knowing those levels that we can really uh, do a, a sort of a, a comprehensive uh, estimate of what the risks actually are. Right. So, so you're saying we don't actually have enough information to know. I mean, I, I gather the IAEA is on side that, that you know, in, in the, with the balance of probabilities, this isn't an issue, but we don't really know. That seems alarming. Well, the, the, the proposal uh, from Japan and, and TEPCO that was evaluated by um, the UN was that uh, the waters would be tested before um, they're actually diluted um, and, and released to the coastal ocean. So those measurements before the release would, would really dictate uh, what the risk would be. And in fact, release wouldn't be allowed until the waters were treated uh, to levels recognized internationally, um, not to represent a risk, you know, either to the human beings who are, you know, carrying out the process itself uh, or the coastal ocean, um, people who rely on seafood or who use the ocean for recreation there in Japan. Right. I, I know I know you're not an expert in nuclear reactors, but clearly they need to do something with this water, right? They're concerned about keeping it where it is. Um, the, the ocean just seems, you know, I, I guess this was always going to come and you, you've been studying this for quite a while this day was always going to come where they were going to have to try to release some of it or all of it uh, and there was going to be concerns around it yeah i mean uh, when you look at what their options are um, as you pointed out in your your lead-in there's there's about you know 1.3 million uh, tons of, of this uh, contaminated water on site um, and they produce more contaminated water every day and storing it in tanks there carries its own risks both to, again, human beings and the environment. So whether it might be through human error, some accidental release, or another natural disaster, like another very large earthquake, um, the unplanned release of those waters could be quite harmful to the environment and quite harmful uh, to public health, potentially. And so holding the water there carries its own risk. And what's being weighed is that risk, that's a real risk, versus this dilution and release and then mixing and dispersion uh, in the North Pacific Ocean. And 
um, based on what Japan and TEPCO have looked at, um, they assess that that risk um, to, to, to human health and the environment is, is minimized dealing with this waste by you know, treating it further, uh, diluting it, and then uh, releasing it into the coastal ocean. But uh, again, it's, it's difficult to determine exactly how those risks have been weighed relative to one another um, because we don't really have a full accounting of, of the levels of some of the isotopes that we're concerned about that are in these tanks that we know to be in the water. Right. And, and, and it's sort of and somewhat, I, I don't know how much of a lack of transparency it is, but it certainly raised a lot of concern amongst its neighbors, right, who are, aren't entirely convinced. I mean, a lot of this is politics and, and the, the animosities and the regional fights in that neighborhood go back a very long time. Uh, but clearly, in terms of just convincing everybody else that this is safe, uh, they've, been, they've been struggling to do that. Yes, I think, you know, you rightly point out that there are economic factors here at work and, and uh, historical relationships between uh, these countries, um, uh, you know, which I'm not really qualified to, to comment on at all. Uh, but when, when you look at um, any plan, so if, if this uh, release plan goes ahead as it's scheduled to do, I think one can, key component will be independent and um, you know, transparent monitoring of the levels of these radionuclides that we see both close to the Japanese uh, mainland, but also in the North Pacific Ocean. So uh, international monitoring by, by you know, um, experts in, in the field, uh, real-time uh, reporting of, of levels and information. I think that's the only way really that uh, the public, broadly speaking, and the international community can really be convinced that this risk management strategy, this, this dealing with this, this problem, um, that that won't go away really um, at, at at the at the plant site. Um, that this is really the best way forward. That that minimizes again this this potential harm to to human beings and uh, and to our natural environment that's so important to us. Jay, you you spent time looking into you spent a lot of time looking into this because I think I remember first arriving back in BC in 2015, and there was still concern then about what the impact of Fukushima was on this side of the Pacific. And you looked into this, and I think it's really interesting because it speaks a lot to the sort of uh, concerns that exist even today in the in the in that region about what the impact ultimately was, and it wasn't great on this side of the ocean. Well, what we found actually um, uh, in terms of risk is that the risk here, both to to the marine ecosystem and, and human beings on the west coast of Canada, was was, was quite small. And, and in fact, uh, we knew that because in the wake of the, the the meltdowns that did occur at the Fukushima Daiichi site, uh, the federal agency is responsible for monitoring radioactive uh, isotopes in the environment. So, Health Canada the Radiation Protection Bureau, and the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. They, they were monitoring from, from day one. And we leveraged what they were doing um, by taking samples, uh, seawater samples, and, and samples of marine organisms like Pacific salmon and shellfish. And, uh, you know, we looked at uh, um, a whale and some sharks and, uh, you know, that we could get our hands on. And, and we used citizen science volunteers, community scientists up and down the coast to look for these contaminant isotopes uh, in our waters right at the beach. And, and what we found is that, you know, the levels of the isotopes we were most concerned about, given how much was released from, from, from Japan at the time, and uh, their potential to do harm to living things, the levels of those isotopes really didn't approach levels that we knew would cause harm, either to uh, marine organisms or, or, or people who might consume them or people who spent a lot of time in the water. 
Um, so, so that was part of a, a program called Fukushima Inform, and we were making those measurements and getting them to the public. So that was our goal, is to assess uh, what, what, what the damage uh, could potentially be to the Pacific ecosystem that, that we rely on as Canadians and, and also public health uh, here on the west coast of uh, North America. Yeah, but as 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 you said off the top, I mean, even twelve years later, the concern—the I don't want to call it paranoia because it's not—but but sort of the concern around anything radioactive continues to this day. And and here we are with another example. It hasn't gotten a lot of coverage in Canada yet. I suspect it might at some point uh, mm-hmm. when they when they actually start to release the water. Uh, but this is one of those issues that twelve years later we're still talking about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think, you know, uh, there, there are some people who say it's unreasonable to be concerned about these, these levels of isotopes, the, the levels that we were seeing. Um, but I, I don't think, think that's the case at all. I think it's perfect, perfectly reasonable for, for members of the public to be worried, uh, concerned about the health of their, their family and their friends when uh, these sorts of, of disasters occur. Um, and in, in the wake of the, the Fukushima Daiichi disaster, I mean, I was concerned. I was concerned about atmospheric contamination coming over uh, in rain here, um, um, you know, being transported across the Pacific. And certainly I was concerned about the potential impact uh, on the North Pacific. And, and that was really the motivation for getting this team of experts together to get information to the public. Because, you know, at the time there wasn't a lot of high quality information um, getting to people. They, they would go online and they would find people writing uh, nonsense about specific boiling or being sterilized by radioactivity. Um, and, uh, you know, without really good scientifically based information there, there wasn't a lot to go on. So, uh, you know, I don't think it's unreasonable for people to be concerned about these kinds of issues. Uh, but I do think it's really quite important to have that quality information so that people can make the decisions that they need to make you know, to keep themselves, their, their family and their friends uh, safe in the wake of any sort of environmental uh, disaster or that, you know, that can have negative impacts on the environment and, and, and human health. Right. So I suppose the importance with this latest episode, uh, this latest chapter in, in Japan will be the monitoring, right? Will be the monitoring to make sure it's as safe as they think it is. I really think so. And I, I think that monitoring needs to be independent. Um, there's a natural uh, distrust, uh, distrust of, of TEPCO both in Japan and internationally, um, partly due to uh, how transparent they were immediately following and, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, following the meltdowns and, and, and subsequently. So I think that having that information that's coming from, from impartial experts, from international coalitions of scientists is, is really key. Um, and it's only with that kind of information and transparency uh, that, that people can understand what the real impacts would be. Well, Jay Cullen, thank you so much for your insight on this. I appreciate it. Well, Ben, I, again, I really appreciate the invitation and I'm uh, happy to speak with you this evening. This is a really interesting story and a really interesting guest. On paper, The premise of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank is pretty straightforward. It was set up by China's Xi Jinping back in early 2015, spearheaded by China, headquartered in Beijing. It is meant to be an alternative to institutions such as the World Bank and the IMF, which China's long felt were too dominated by the U.S. and other Western powers. It attracted a lot of support. The AIIB has 106 members worldwide, including Canada, which joined in 2018 and purchased AIIB shares to the tune of about $500 million. Notably, the U.S. is not a member. 
Like other institutions, it funds similar institutions. It funds development projects in a number of countries. The website says it has approved funding for 221 projects so far at the cost of approximately $42 billion. But it's been accused over the years of being essentially run by its biggest shareholder, China. Now, Canadian Bob Picard was brought in a little more than a year ago as Director General of Communications to try to dispel that belief, to tell a story about the institution's independence and good governance. But one month ago, he resigned, suddenly, saying that the Chinese Communist Party uh, and officials with the Chinese Communist Party inside the bank do indeed wield way too much influence, setting off a bombshell in international, in the worlds of international finance and geopolitics. Um, on social media, after announcing he was leaving the bank and getting out of the country, he wrote, as a patriotic Canadian, this was my only course. The bank is dominated by Communist Party members and also has one of the most toxic cultures imaginable. I don't believe that my country's interests are served by its AIIB membership. Now, following his resignation, Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland announced that Canada would freeze its membership and review uh, its membership with the AIIB. Today I learned of the resignation from the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank by a Canadian citizen who voiced serious concerns regarding the bank. The Government of Canada will immediately halt all government-led activity at the bank and I have instructed the Department of Finance to lead an immediate review of the allegations raised and of Canada's involvement in the AIIB. Right, and Canada's involvement has been somewhat controversial because of these claims that have existed for a while. But but uh, my next guest was really the first person from inside the organization to step out of it and say, there's a big problem here. Now, the AIIB did their own internal review. It was released late, late last week. They called his allegations incorrect and unsubstantiated. Uh, but he stands by them, and his belief is that Canada needs to step away from its membership in the AIIB as fast as possible. And Bob Picard joins me now to explain why. Bob, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me, Ben. It's been quite the month. I mean, it's been about a month now since you um, announced you were leaving. Tell me a bit about what you were doing there, because I think it's important for listeners to understand what your what your duties were at the, at the bank and what you were brought in to do. Ben, I was brought in to build a global image for the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank because it had a really bad image before, and it had an ill understood image where people thought it was more of a Chinese bank of some kind, as opposed to a multilateral institution comprised of different country members, including Canada, for example, Germany, UK, Italy, etc. So that was the challenge initially that I, I signed up for. And I was pretty excited about it. When you got there, how long before you started to think, wait a second, that's exactly, at least in, in what I've been reading, I mean, you've used terms like cesspool and so on, but how long before yeah. you start to figure out, wait a second, what I'm here to try to uh, change attitudes about is in fact exactly what's going on. A few months into the job, I started to realize that all was not as explained or it, it was it was kind of a, a clammy and uncomfortable atmosphere because there was like this special class of people. And I was... I was warned about these people, the Communist Party members in the bank. As a newcomer, people said, you know what, Bob, you don't want to screw with that guy or you you don't want to mess with that person because, well, you know, they're they're a party member. Or Bob, if you need to raise money in a budget, if you if you need to get some 
additional headcount that here's the person you go to. And invariably, this was a party member. And what I discovered over time is that the party members, the Chinese communist or CCP members, they are like this super class of influential people who were operating in a power concentration informally below the radar that was not visible outside of the bank, which I felt was a failure of open and transparent governance by AIIB. How did that impact? I mean, how did that manifest itself day to day for you when you were trying to do your job? Because I think one understands, I mean, I think most most listeners won't know what it's like to work at, say, the World Bank or the Asian Development Bank. These are sure. big organizations. I mean, I worked in a financial institution for a while. There are lots of rules. There are a lot. There is a lot of oversight. Uh, how did it manifest itself in your day to day work, this sort of parallel power structure? To get anything done, I would have to work the parallel power structure to earn a positive result. For example, we wanted to build a media studio for the bank. Think of like having a, a TV broadcast studio inside of the bank. That way we could communicate directly around the world. But of course, media studios cost money, half a million dollars in this case. And who did I have to go to to make my pitch? And how could I get my resources allocated quickly? Was it through the regular well-governed budget process or was it through a special appeal to the party members who run the president's office, which has this kind of a strongman system that rules the bank top down beyond board oversight and uh, in a way that goes around the usual management system of the organization. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, in China, of course, people are, are familiar with President Xi mm -hmm. and it's a one party state and there's a, a dictator who rules basically by decree. Increasingly, I felt the same kind of vibe at AIIB, notwithstanding all the fancy looking, you know, names of the countries on the letterhead and some of the foreigners on the management, who in many cases, and perhaps I was one of them, were window dressing where the real power was on the inside with the Chinese party members. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you call I me mean, the term I think you used was useful idiots. I mean, this was right at the time that you were leaving. So I'm sure it was you were it was the, yeah. I mean, the heat of the moment. You made the decision then to just to, to go and you went fast. What what prompted that? Because that was a big decision on your part and it's caused a lot of waves. Well, I took a stand on this and I felt because I'm in public relations, public is our thing. We like public. We are always public people. And I felt that the people of Canada should realize what it is that we're supporting and financing. I would help to communicate the bank to Western audiences by pointing at the membership of Western countries like Canada. But then I came to realize that I and we were being used to put a, a positive shine on what is effectively a power mechanism of the People's Republic of China so that we could lend the reputation and prestige of Canada to a project that makes it look like China can be trusted running an international system for the day when it becomes number one. And I really didn't want to support that anymore. I, I signed up for the job thinking I was going to sp spread accurate awareness of this bank around the world. But I then felt, uh, actually, when I saw the reality in Beijing, that if I were to continue in my job, I would be spreading inaccurate awareness and misleading people. And that I did not want to do at all costs. And so I got out of Dodge and I headed for the exits because they knew that I was going to blow the whistle on this. And I felt it was high time to, to move forward and, and get to the airport. 
that is a, a not a comfortable situation if you are no. you fall out of favor, right? And specifically if they're worried about the the reputational impact of what you might be saying. What interested Quite. me was not so much the reaction from the AIIB; it was the right. fact that the most the most sort of vociferous reaction came from the Chinese embassy and the Chinese state media. They reacted instantly and in a highly toxic and incendiary way. They called me a liar. They branded me as somebody who was engaging in hype. And actually, actually, as a PR guy, that's kind of a compliment, you know. Yeah. Uh, if, if I'm if I'm good at hype, I must be reasonably good at, at corporate communications, I suppose. Uh, but yeah, that 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 was the wolf warrior stuff that was really over the top. I felt, and it, uh, you know, it it was comically so. It wasn't credible. And the bank has just issued a whitewash report, which is a pack of lies. Uh, to undermine my credibility as somebody who was blowing the whistle on the party presence, the Communist Party presence at this bank. Bob Picard is with us. He's the former director of communications for the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank based in Beijing, set up about six, seven years ago as China's answer in some ways to what they felt was a system, the World Bank and the the International Monetary Fund that was too Western leaning. So they thought, we'll set up this bank, we'll we'll sort of set up a parallel uh, competing bank, but we'll make it just like those other ones. Same kind of structure, same kind of governance. Bob, of course, worked there for a little more than a year and found something very different while he was there and has now come out publicly to talk about it. Uh, Right away, And this was really, I think, one of the reasons why uh, there was such a vociferous reaction from China on this. Right away, Canada said, wait a second, okay, we're going to look into this. We're going to review this. Well, that was the right move, I suspect. Uh, Did you expect that to happen? It was very quick. I had no idea. I was impressed. But my head was spinning because I thought, wow, uh, this is the kind of prompt and quick action that one doesn't typically associate with government. Yeah. Did you, and you've spoken, obviously you're taking part, we're doing a review, Canada's doing a review as well of this, and I imagine they wanted to speak to you. You didn't take part in that internal review that the AIIB did. I did not, because it was biased and because they wouldn't let me have access to my archives, so I couldn't recreate timelines or put together uh, detailed case studies and that kind of thing. So I feel that they failed the test of having an independent inquiry here, which I would welcome. Now, while I didn't participate in the bank's review, uh, which has produced basically a pack of lies. I I did participate enthusiastically in providing all the information I possibly could uh, to both the government of Canada and to the official opposition in Ottawa. And you feel fundamentally that Canada is not benefiting at all from, from membership in this institution? Not only do I feel that Canada is not benefiting at all, if you ask the board representatives of lots of other countries from the West, like the UK or Germany or France, Italy, and so on, what the benefits are for their countries, Australia, another great example, you'll get a whole bunch of gobbledygook and corporate speak. I am a PR person interested in communicating my client stories publicly. And so as a Canadian, as the senior Canadian at the bank, for that whole time I was there, almost a year and a half, I was trying to come up with the story that would resonate with Canadians about a benefit to our membership that would really reach everybody. But I, 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 at the end of all this, I was still scratching my head, you know, having, having a window on development finance in Asia, that was about the best I could come up with. But why wouldn't we do that through the World Bank or the Asia Development Bank or bilaterally through our own government? Right now, the bank is uh, currently doing over 200 projects in like 40 countries. This is AIIB I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. 
Now, when when they make a new uh, subway station subway station in Delhi or finance some project in Uzbekistan or Bangladesh, which country is going to get the credit for that geopolitically? Us or the country that has been trying persistently to undermine Canada in our elections, in our political system, in our law enforcement, and in all kinds of different nefarious ways? We are not going to get credit for it. The Chinese government is going to get credit for it. So where where on earth? Does that benefit us? I just don't think it does. Right. And we've kicked in, you know, I, last I looked, it was nearly it was half a billion dollars back in 2017. Uh, so the, I suppose the, the right move in your mind then would be to withdraw at this point. I mean, you, it, you've you heard from the bank. Itself. I think you, you were privy to a conversation where they sort of downplayed Canada quite a bit. I mean, they must know Canada's concerns with what's happened in our bilateral relations with China of late. And those were kind of downplayed by, by people within the bank, you said. I would describe the colleagues in the bank as dispassionate and ignorant concerning Canadian affairs, almost as if Canada should it leave the bank. Well, who cares? It was like, so what? And I made the point. I said, look, if Canada goes from the bank, and I'm not even sure how many of them knew that we are a G7 country, this would this may make other Western democracies consider their positions in the bank. Well, you know, if if the Canadians go, then shouldn't we look at whether or not we should stay? And so I think this is why in countries right now, like Australia, this is becoming an issue that's being discussed in the news. You know, I'm sure, you know, I've, I've been in your shoes as a PR person, too. You know, you're really uh, your job is to kind of lurk behind the scenes and tell the story. Now you are the story that must. How's that been? It's a new experience. And for all my 30 years of communications experience, I must say what I have learned is that no matter what you say in the public domain, amplified by social media, there are, well, in this case, anyway, hundreds, if not thousands of bots who may or may not be real people who will attack you for geopolitical reasons on social media, Twitter, in my case. When I started to mention the connection between AIIB and Chinese Communist Party bots, the, that whole army of them that exist, then suddenly they abruptly stopped criticizing me. So if that doesn't show some kind of connection between the two, I don't know what does. Right. And you're home. You feel like you've made the right, that, that was the right decision. So you had a month to sort of percolate over it. You feel like you made the right choice at the right time. Sure. I stand by my original allegations 100%. And for someone like me, who has worked around the world in various countries, performing public relations on a global basis, this, I can assure you, Ben, was not an easy decision. And so I weighed it very carefully and notwithstanding the gravity of of what this meant in terms of the controversy or what it could challenge my reputation with, I went ahead anyway. And I've received nothing but positive feedback here in Canada. I can't say the same thing back in China, though, for reasons you can well imagine. Right. And you have been, and the, and the reception here has been positive, right? You've you've been welcomed back, even by those, for instance, within government who really wanted to hear what you had to say, who may have had reasons to think this was problematic. Sure. And I, I sense no axe to grind with the government when it comes to any of the politics here. I think the government's taking a sincere look. And I must say, uh, it was interesting to me a few days after I left that bank to see in Bloomberg a media story indicating that Canadian government officials had commented off the record that we as a country were already, prior to my action, 
thinking of the concerns we have about the bank, including over-concentration of power in the president's office. So I, I suspect one of the reasons they acted so quickly is because they were already worried about certain Canadian interests not being well served with this bank. But that is speculation to some extent. Right. Well, Bob, thank you so much for sharing your time on this. I appreciate it. Welcome home. Thanks, Ben. It's really great to be back here in Canada. Uh, you'll know already today that Bank of Governor Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklem um, decided to hike interest rates. The Bank of Canada has to five percent, up another quarter point. It's the highest it's been in a very long time. He says the bank now believes inflation, and this is the whole point of raising interest rates, is try to try to tame inflation back down to that two to three percent level. Won't reach the target level until middle of 2025. Looking ahead, we continue to expect economic growth to moderate and inflation to ease. But this will take longer than we forecast in January and April. As the global economy slows and higher interest rates work their way through the Canadian economy, we expect economic growth to average about 1% through the second half of this year and the first half of next year. And he says they're prepared, prepared to raise interest rates again if the economic data warrants it. Now, of course, this just makes borrowing more expensive, right? So whether it's a line of credit or a HELOC or a mortgage, whatever, it makes it more expensive. And that is inevitably passed down throughout the economy. So it means more money uh, spent by – I mean, if homeowners are paying more money and you happen to be landlords, then renters are going to pay more as well. And it just trickles down through the entire system. My next guest has kind of a different take on what we see as this affordability and housing crisis. He believes it isn't a crisis at all, meaning the entire system was actually built this way. It's just acting the way it should. Um, that in fact, when you have something like housing, which is in short supply, and there's big demand for it, it's in the vested interest of those who are renting out to jack up the prices as much as they possibly can. You can't expect anything else. That's the way it works. So what we're watching right now isn't just a sudden crisis, which would, what a crisis would suggest, but it's the way the entire housing system in this country has been built for ages. I mean, a lot of people in this country aren't suffering at all if you've paid off your house or if you have a long-term mortgage and it's easily affordable. If you've made, if the value of your home has gone up exponentially over the last couple, 20 years or so, there is no crisis out there, right? There might be one for your kids or so on. But for some people in this country, there's no crisis at all. There also are also others who've gone out and purchased lots of investment properties to rent them out. And of course, if you're doing that, the impetus is to make money or at least have it pay for itself while it goes up in value. So of course, you're going to put up the rents if you can, right? So my next guest says the whole system is a bit broken and that's what needs fixing. You can't solve it if you don't know what the real problem is. Uh, Ricardo Tranjan is a senior researcher with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. His book is called The Tenant Class, and he joins me now. Ricardo, thanks for your time. Hello, and thanks for having me. Just quickly, if you could take me back a bit over the legacy of renting in Canada, because I think, you know, history, what we see today is born not of the last five years or the last 10 years, but the last hundred or so years in this country. Yes, traditionally in Canada, we have thought of housing as having sort of three key components. Uh, we have encouraged home ownership for the middle class and for the upper classes. Uh, we have then a segment of the population that rents from the private sector and a very small share of the population that has access to social public subsidized housing. So presently we have 
two-thirds of the population uh, owns, another third rents, and of those who rent, um, there's only about 15% um, of them that access uh, subsidized housing. So most tenants uh, rent from the private market. Yeah, it was a system that, I mean, I grew up in a, in a rental place, not always, you know, my parents split up and I lived, one was rented, one was owned. I mean, it worked fairly well for quite a while. I mean, there, there was a time where people would use it, either they chose to stay in a rental that was moderately affordable, uh, but it seemed to work for quite a few decades, at least in terms of the way that people actually abided by the system that allegedly is in place, which is you rent for a while, you buy, right? That was, and it was affordable to some extent, but sometime, you know, sometime not that long ago, the system started to buckle under the pressure, I think. Well, there is a share of the population and low-income folks, and in particular occupations, a disproportionate share of racialized families for whom access to home ownership was always difficult. But you write that if you think about the 1960s and 1970s, uh, folks who had a good unionized job, even if he was only moderately paid. Home ownership was was something that they could aspire to, and and, and many of them uh, did manage to to achieve it. Uh, so it, that's the trajectory you describe. So you know, the beginning they couldn't, and it worked, and then they put some down payment, and then they managed to pay that throughout their careers. And by the time they retired, they had finished paying the mortgage, which was good because then you know the income drops, but their living standards remains the same. Right now, it's a lot more messier than that. Right. And yet you said, and this is probably the more the, the, the way the mute, the book sort of starts with a bang, is that you don't think there's a, a housing crisis per se. You think there's a systemic crisis. And, and there's a big difference between the two, uh, because it, it goes a long way to describing what a solution might look like. Absolutely. When we talk about a housing crisis, I think we tend to think of something that is shocking and unexpected, whereas, as we just mentioned, the structure of the housing market has been the same for decades and decades and decades, and the situation has been slowly deteriorating for tenant families, but for quite some time too. Also, when we talk about crisis, we tend to think about something that impacts everyone negatively, or at least most people, which is not the case also. It is people who are renting or people who are unhoused who are facing the negative impacts of the current market. Uh, those who own, those who who are landlords, developers, the real estate industry in general, they're doing quite well. If this were a crisis, then it would have some sense of urgency and, and governments would act with resolve. And then we could also count on everyone to be interested in, in solving the problem, which is also not the case. There are a lot of folks who wouldn't have it anything any different than it is right now because they are enormously benefiting from the status quo. And and I would argue some, you know, when you think about corporate landlords and some of the real estate investment trusts, they're actually actively lobbying to keep the things the same. Right, because because in my experience as a renter uh, over year over the years, I mean, most of the renting that I did was from individuals who happened to either have a duplex or you know they lived downstairs, you lived upstairs, or they had a unit. Some they you know they'd gotten married and there was another one. They sort of moved in together and there was a unit that they then rented out. It was pretty small potatoes overall. But you're saying that that it's become in the last, I, I think, the last twenty years or so, maybe longer. It's become a way of making money. It's become a way of accumulating wealth by buying up properties and renting them out. Now, there's nothing illegal about that, but we're seeing the impacts of it now, clearly, as rents continue to rise and people find it less and less affordable. 
Yes, there's two aspects to it. We can think about overall what share of the entire rental stock is on the hands of the small landlords versus very large corporate landlords, very large uh, real estate investment trusts. And there you see that over the past couple of decades, the, the large landlords are, are purchasing a larger and larger uh, number of units and owning a larger share of the stock as a whole. But then even when you talk about that second part, the smaller landlords, the small investors, there also has been a change that at some point, a secondary unit or a secondary house was thought as a steady source of income, a complement, whereas right now the expectation to turn really high returns in a short period of time. And then we see that with, with rents increasing very aggressively. We see that with the notion um, a unit has to pay for itself. So we have a lot of folks who um, just borrow against their primary residence and they put a down payment on a second unit and they expect the unit to pay for itself, uh, maybe generate even some profit on a month-to-month -month basis and they will own the unit at the end of it. So so I think the, the level of expectation for the, the, the high levels of return the real estate um, will provide has changed quite dramatically too. Ricardo Tranchet is with us. He's a senior researcher at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. His book is called The Tenant Class. Uh, Ricardo, I mean, again, it's one of those kind of difficult problems. You mentioned it earlier, 66% of Canadians own their homes. That's a big voting block, right? Uh, you know, buying an investment property is not seen in this country as an act of charity. You do not rent it out and lose money on it out of the goodness of your heart. It's just not the way the system works. So what would you do then to try and uh, walk that fine line between creating more affordable housing and more housing security for those who obviously and absolutely need it in this country, at the same time as respecting the fact that it'll probably never change whole hog. I think housing security needs to be achieved through government intervention. It is unfair to expect the private sector to deliver a housing security. They're in it for profit, and they won't even argue otherwise. They will be open about it. Um, real estate is seen as high returns and low risk, and that's why we're going in for the big bucks. And they're not concerned with housing affordability, housing security, or other, any other social outcomes. And that's the role of government. It's the role of government to regulate rents, to make sure that rents don't go up by more than inflation, by more than wages are going, so that folks can continue to you know pay rent and also afford food and other basic needs. Needs. And it's also the role of government to directly invest in non-market housing, different models of, of rental housing. It can be a co-op, it can be a non-profit housing provider, it can be house, social housing traditionally owned by government. But overall, the term non-market housing refers to housing where profit is not part of the equation. And as you can imagine, when profit is not part of the equation, those houses are a lot more affordable to the tenants and tenants still pay rent. So those houses also pay for itself. So it's not like an ongoing investment in this on the part of the government. Right. And, and yet, I mean, I, I know you worked in poverty reduction in Toronto. A lot of those buildings that existed 30, 40 years ago, 20, 30 years ago, they were all torn down, right? That was the point. We got rid of what was, unquote, unquote, you know, the project, so to speak. Those were torn down at one point because they were felt to be, uh, you know, that they weren't working properly. Is there a way of reinventing that, do you think, for a modern age that would answer some of the demands? I mean, we're seeing a larger group of people 
who are struggling to pay rent now than we did 10 years ago. Uh, what, what might that look like um, in terms of non, you know, non-market housing, so to speak? There are various models, and 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 you get really into the weeds there. But one thing I would emphasize is um, we have lots of experience, not only in Canada but internationally, with models that didn't work, things that work better. Right now, there is a big emphasis in in non-for-profit housing providers, let's say NGOs, that own buildings, and some of the units are directly subsidized by governments some are uh, rented at uh, average market rents the notion is that they move money around a little bit to ensure affordability for everyone and um, never you know generating profit but um, also having a business that is sustainable and then over time the thing that is interesting when you look at the data for those buildings tenure um, duration is very long right. meaning folks who move in they usually stay there for quite sometimes because it's just a good place to be it's affordable it's secure and um, they don't necessarily feel pressure to go anywhere which is a good thing yeah i mean housing security is ultimately what this is all about right finding it depending on and and as you see a growing number of people who seem to believe they're never going to be able to buy a house uh now we don't know what the housing market's going to look like in 30 years but you know a growing chunk of the population who look like they're going to be renting for the foreseeable future it's incumbent that policymakers recognize that and start to provide the kind of housing that is secure for those people i think Yes, and and that's the I think you, you really hit the nail in the head there. Like what folks want for, first and foremost is housing security. But in Canada, we have come to equate housing security with home ownership, and we have to ask ourselves: Is it possible that with better regulations, with more market intervention, with a larger share of nonprofit housing, we will be able to think of rental? as a way of also achieving housing security without having you know to own a, a, a house a lot of politicians a lot of elected officials prefer to emphasize access to ownership because it sells better right no pun intended but you know it's it's something that resonates with folks that's where our, our cultural preference is and they keep promising that and there's a lot of emphasis during elections federal and provincial on um, what would make rental housing more secure what would make rental housing more affordable about 70 percent of tenant households will not qualify for any kind of subsidy or subsidized housing uh, because they make too right. much money. But they would also not have money anytime soon to put a down payment in a home, right? So about 70% of tenants today are likely to rent for a very long time and not have access to subsidized housing. So what is there for them? And 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 I think we rarely talk about it. Yeah, other than sitting at home hoping and praying your landlord doesn't up and sell, right? I mean, that's therein lies the insecurity. Uh, Ricardo Tranja, the book is called The Tenant Class. It's a great read. Uh, Ricardo Tranja, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I am Marcus. I'm on a journey around the planet without ever using motorized transport. When I started heading west in a canoe from Toronto, I didn't know how I was going to get across the Pacific Ocean. Two weeks later, I was introduced to Dave, and when we spoke on the phone, he invited me to sail his nine-meter boat with him to Asia. The following is a brief summary of the first year on this journey. How I got across Canada, down to San Francisco, and our 25-day sail together to the big island of Hawaii, where a nightmare came true. 
Marcus Pakonin uh, has just returned. He's back in Canada now after eight years. It is a remarkable journey. He's detailed some of how he did it there. But he made it all the way around the world without ever once using a motorized vehicle or motorized transport without a plane, train, or automobile. He didn't even ride an elevator or an escalator. Um, it was quite the journey. Don't forget it happened. I mean, during that time, COVID hit. He was in India at that point. Um, there were many challenges along the way. Of course, it's hot, it's crowded, there's traffic. Uh, he sailed from from India all the way around the Cape of Good Hope uh, and all the way back to North America. I mean, on his own. It has been an absolutely astounding journey. He set off um, way back in 2015 and he returned uh, 10 days ago, coming back into Canada on a bicycle, crossing uh, the U.S. border at Niagara Falls and called that just an unbelievably emotional experience. I mean, over the over all this time, uh, he's 40 now, he hand cycled, he tricycled, he skied, he kayaked, he uh, paddle boarded, he bicycled, he sailed, he walked, he did it all, but he did not use motorized transportation. Marcus uh, Pakonin, who is an adventure activist filmmaker, you can find all his journey at rootsofchange.org, but he joins me now uh, to tell us all about it. Marcus, thank you so much. Welcome home. Thank you so much for having me. So tell me, what, what have you been up to today? What's what's uh, you're, you're still traveling, right? <laughs> well, no, I have actually stopped traveling, but okay. I still get around by bicycle in the city of Toronto. So I've bicycled across the city from... Uh, place where I ended the journey in the beaches uh, back to the place where I was staying before the final day at my sister's condo in the west side. Right. Which might, which in some ways may be more challenging than many of the days you had while you're out moving around the world, right? Getting through Toronto is such a hassle sometimes. It's actually not that bad on bicycle. Okay. I go a lot faster than the traffic, thankfully. No doubt. Uh, tell me a bit, you set out um, from there and and yes. you you went an awfully long way. What was the inspiration behind it? Did you just sort of sit up one day and think I can do that? Uh, you know, it was it was a long time coming. I had traveled quite a bit in the world, and I had seen you know how my choices in Canada affect communities all over the world. And I I was inspired to be more of environmental and social activist, but I had no desire whatsoever to work in an office and doing that work. And so I figured how I could get involved in my own way and, and create my own dream job. And uh, as I was trying to figure out my life, my dad called me up and told me he had been diagnosed with a rare form of leukemia and had two weeks to live unless he did some chemo. And so I basically, on my way home to see him, ironically, I was flying home at the time. I, I wrote down on the pen of paper, the roots of change journey, which uh, basically combines everything I'm passionate about into one project. And it's my answer to the question, what would I want to be doing with my life if I found out that I was going to die? Uh, how could I live my life with no regrets? How could I be on my deathbed and have zero regrets? And this was the answer to that question. Yeah. 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 I, it's often profound change in life that, that sort of wakes people up, right? It's, um, it's just one of those, it's one of those awful things about, about difficult news is that it does inspire you to sort of look at things a bit or do things that you may have put off, right? The, a, a journey around the world without using a motorized anything is something you could easily put off for a very long time. I get the impression. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, when I came up with the idea, it, uh, I started working towards it and it took me seven years to finally start the journey. 
uh, partly because I took some bad advice and partly just because other things in life got in the way, but I could see it slipping away. I could see the dream sort of getting a bit more distant. And that's when I decided, okay, I got to give my five, myself five months. I'm going to start the journey, whether or not I'm ready, whether or not I have uh, financial support to make a film, I'm just going to go for it and I'll make it work somehow. The universe has a way of, of helping you out when you uh, move in the direction of your dreams. And right. so... Once yeah, you once I'm, you get going, inertia has a has a funny way of just carrying you, right? In in some senses, it, <laughs> what, it what? really does. It yeah. really does. And you know, I've discovered I have a very supportive community, not just here in Canada, but all over the world. Uh, strangers along the way have helped me do this, and uh, I really do feel at the start of the journey, I felt like I was in control of my life and I was determining my future. And at the end, I feel like I've just been. For the past few years, I've just been riding this wave of prayer and support that has pushed me around the world. So it's been pretty special. Yeah, that's that's probably even more, um, in some ways, probably even more gratifying than the incredible things you must have seen along the way. So how did you do it? I mean, you set off. I, I, I've, I've heard stories about skis and paddle boards and sailboats and obviously foot, foot, bicycle, the, you know, the usual ones. But you've uh, you've done it all. <laughs> not all there's quite a few things I, I didn't get to do that i would have liked to do but uh, I've, I've tried to use as many different modes of transportation as possible just to just to have fun and also just to sort of switch up the repetitive strain on my body uh so yeah it's used i've used maybe 20 different types of crafts and many different types of individual crafts along the way uh, when I started out across Canada, I started in a canoe with a friend and my backup plan was always to get a bicycle sent to me but because I just kept meeting wonderful people along the way, they just kept lending me and borrowing. And I was borrowing all sorts of interesting things like a hand cycle and a tricycle. And I was actually sponsored a pogo stick. So I pogo stick through Winnipeg. It was 10 kilometers. Took me five hours. <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds like a tough one. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah I, I wasn't confident in my ability to do that. But, you know, something about hopping through the city just put a smile on my face. And yeah. And Winnipeg's no such pain. a cool spot, too. Winnipeg's such a cool spot. You could easily get away with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then there were some tough times, too. I mean, I was reading at one point, I mean, you've talked about this a lot, but there was um, there was skiing in winter through BC, which is never never easy. Yeah, when you get into minus 20 degrees and you're you're sleeping outside on the on the snow, it, it can be tough. Uh, that was definitely one of the tougher points on the journey. I said I'd never do that again. But now I sort of miss the snow. And so I'm ready to live in the snow again. Right. But yeah, in, in addition to that, like there's one of the biggest surprises of the journey and something I wasn't really, I'd say, mentally prepared for was just the amount of pollution that there is in Asia. Right. Uh, yeah. You know, I, lived in, I lived in Beijing. Yeah. 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 Keenly aware. And, you know, it's, it's, it's suffocating if you if you're not used to it. Yeah, and I, I didn't go to Beijing, but even just in in the in national parks in Asia and up and high in the Himalaya, you just can't escape it. And I had this vision of this journey being through national park to beautiful wilderness area, but in reality, there's just people everywhere in Asia and the industry is sort of out of control and the roads are just filled with cars that are spewing black exhaust in your face. And so uh, thankfully, the people are absolutely wonderful and welcoming. Otherwise, I would have just 
completely suffered my whole time there. But the, the balance of the welcoming people sort of overplayed the, the pollution that I had to inhale. Right. And you found yourself there in Southeast Asia, right in the middle of the pandemic, right? I mean, all of a sudden, your journey came to a, to a sudden and, and forced halt. Well, you know, it actually came at a really good time because I was planning on taking a, a break anyways and going up into an ashram in the north of India there and just doing some yoga and, and meditation and, and editing my, my vlog at the time. And uh, because COVID hit, I, I actually was forced to be stay in this one town where there was, you know, five to a thousand other foreign travelers all there for uh, yoga teacher training or for their spiritual quest. You know, it was where the Beatles had hung out in an ashram back in the day. So it was a pretty beautiful place, right, where the Ganges comes out of the Himalaya. I met a wonderful woman two days before lockdown, fell in love, and uh, had a very strong uh, community there. So it was actually. Not that bad for me. <laughs> well, no, it sounds better than most pandemics for sure. And then you set off again. You get in a sailboat at this point, and you sort of start to head. Well, I guess you head west, right? I mean, that's that's, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, thanks to COVID, I was able to find a sailboat from an Australian guy who was stuck in Australia, and I, I bought this twenty-seven foot sailboat and uh, sailed it across the Indian Ocean, and then eventually across the Atlantic solo and all the way to Florida. Wow. There must have been time. I mean, that the, the loneliness of the long distance runner is a famous book or movie. And it, you must have felt some of that isolation at times. But I read there was times where you there was a certain time where you thought, oh, OK, I, I can't. I can't. This is done. I'm it. I'm done. And it was it was yeah. on the way to the Seychelles, right? Yeah. My first sail on that boat, actually, my, my shakedown cruise on that boat was only supposed to be a two week sail. But because there was very little wind. And I don't use a motor. It ended up taking me 40 days to get to the Seychelles. And about 30 days in, uh, I had had very little wind. And then a storm hit me. And the boat started taking on water and started making all these noisy sounds. And I had to manually steer the boat, which I don't usually do. And waves were just you know, breaking all around me. Of course, the bad weather always hits in the middle of the night. And I was just getting really exhausted. And yeah, for the first time in six years, I, I was seriously considering ending the trip. But you kept um, on going. Yeah. And, and you and you wind up yeah. back in the States and you sort of head start to head back up. And this whole time, you never touched a motorized, like not even an, not even an elevator, which is remarkable. Did you have to go to your way to to avoid things or was it pretty straightforward given the route that you took? You know, some of the biggest challenges for me were were malls. If I if I wanted to go buy a new pair of shoes on the second floor of a mall, they all have escalators, and very few have stairs anymore, especially in Asia. So uh, there was times when I had to sneak around inside back doors and and uh, you know inside areas where you're not supposed to go, and just in order to get to the second floor, they stopped uh, you. You could explain, but they wouldn't believe you. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's 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 one of the challenges. I, I meet a lot of new people, meet a st strangers along the way. I tell them what I'm doing, and they immediately think I'm a liar, which is not a great way to start a relationship with somebody. <laughs> no, I'm sure they could be convinced. And then and then you and then you cross back, like you come back into Canada. That was kind of a really nice moment because you've been gone for a long time, and it must have been the way you described coming back into the country was was pretty touching. Yeah, you know, I, I wasn't expecting to feel anything special about crossing that imaginary line, but uh, I got to the customs officer and I started shaking and choking on my words and I thought he wasn't going to let me into the country because he would expect I was on drugs or something like that. So <laughs> it was it was a bit it was a bit comedic, but also, yeah, just 
I don't know, but just all the emotion just hit me. And I just bicycled around the corner and started bawling my eyes out uncontrollably. I couldn't stop crying. I was just, you know, happy to be back in Canada. Yeah. yeah. Now you've been all around the world and this is the kind of the obvious stuff, but you must have learned something about what you need to bring with you on journeys and what you don't, right? And I, I gather it's <laughs> you just bring yourself and and you had your passport and maybe some money, but you must have realized there's there's a lot you can travel without when you're when you're heading out. Well, absolutely. I think, yeah, I mean, you don't need much at all. I think the biggest thing you need is an, an open mind and some patience. And uh, yeah, uh, you know, it, it, unfortunately, when we're young, we're told to not talk to strangers. But when you're traveling around the world, I think it's the most important thing you can do is speak to strangers because they are 99.9999% of the time, very welcoming and helpful people all over the world. I have not run into anybody who I did not trust. So so what now, Marcus? What uh, what now? And how did how did your how did everyone around you back home react to it? I suppose I should ask about your dad too. I don't know what happened to him, but yeah, my dad passed away six months after he he made that call after to the, me. Right. Well, my, yeah. my condolences yeah. on that. I'm sure he was with you. He, he was definitely with me. As was my mom. My mom passed away when I was five years old. So uh, I think their passing in in one way or another definitely enabled me to do this and enabled me to realize what's important to me in my life and, and live life to the fullest and let go of my fear of death and my fear of the unknown. I've uh, come to accept pretty much everything in my life now. And uh, yeah, I mean, my, my family is definitely happy to, to see me back and see me end the journey. My sister let out a lot of emotion at the end of the journey, which I, I don't think I've seen her cry so much in my life. I think she was just relieving a lot of the stress that and worry that she had built up over the years seeing me do this. Um, at the same time, she had come to see me multiple places around the world. So it was, it was nice to see her. Uh, you know, I, it, it was really a, a, a pretty bizarre, surreal day on Saturday, seeing so many friends and family for the first time in eight years. I, it was my, my cheeks were very sore at the end of the day, just from smiling so much. And, uh, yeah, having so many wonderful hugs, it, it was, it's, it's well, really hard for me to put into words. Well, welcome back, Marcus. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.